Well, this morning, as I was uh, talking with some of you all here, um, someone said, well, that's really cool that you're not skipping this passage. Um, That's not always the best thing to hear right before you're getting ready to go preach. But it's not to be not to be a a surprise for me. To be honest, not that I'm not honest with you, but to be more honest, more transparent, today's passage in Matthew 19 has been on my mind and my heart for about the last six months because I knew that this was a tough teaching. This is a tough topic. Anytime we talk about marriage and divorce, there are all sorts of things to think about all sorts of hurts to feel. And so I've been working this passage over in my head and my heart for several months. Now, I don't say that to put out there that you're going to get the best best sermon ever on this, but I want you to know that there is some trepidation and some apprehension on my part coming into this. This is a big issue. It's a big topic. As I approach this passage, I would study it for a bit, and I'd come out and I'd say, okay, I got it. This is what Jesus is saying. Then I'd go read Paul and I'd say, here's what Paul's saying about marriage. And then I'd say, well, but this one says this about divorce and that one says that. Okay, I get it. Jesus holds marriage in a high regard. Jesus allows for divorce in this instance of adultery. Paul allows for divorce in this instance of abandonment. Okay, I got it. And then I'd think a little more. And I'd go, what about abuse? What about neglect? What about violence? What about, what about, what about? What about those who got divorced wrongly and got married to someone else? Is their divorce, is their marriage invalid? Is it sinful? Is it always sinful? These questions kept coming up in my mind. So I began again studying scripture, reading books about scripture, ultimately to just be frustrated and confused. See, I think there's something here in our passage today that Christ is saying to us, and it doesn't have anything to do with the what-ifs and the exemptions. It all starts instead with the concept of marriage. And so my challenge today is to preach this passage to you exactly how it is. And it's your challenge to come to this passage and set aside those what-ifs, not because they're not important, but because it's not what Jesus is addressing here directly, but indirectly, you'll have your questions answered. So we're going to dig into this passage today. So the first thing I want you all to get is that marriage is hard. And I say that the week of my 20th wedding anniversary. The Lord has a sense of humor. My beautiful bride and I have celebrated 20 years of being together. And as you all know, you should pray for her more than you should, being married to me. This week, the Lord had the sense of humor as I was celebrating a 20th anniversary to have to pour over books on divorce. My kids have seen books floating around the house on divorce. See, here's the thing, marriage is hard. Just by itself, just at its nature, it's hard. But then you take the fact that the world is stacking the deck against marriages. In fact, the world is spreading lies about marriage. Think about popular entertainment. Can you find a biblically married couple anywhere? 
See, the thing is, the devil wants marriages to die. He wants to kill them. Our enemy is actively pulling apart every single marriage in this room. Every single one. From the pastor's marriage to the marriage that's on the rocks. All of us are being pulled apart. Why? Because marriage offers stability. That's part of it. Marriage offers children. That's part of it. But more importantly, marriage is a picture of our relationship to Christ. And so if he can destroy marriages here in this room with people who love Christ, he can destroy our view of our marriage to Christ. And this is what we see in our our passage today, and it's what we see in the world around us. So I'm, I'm just always amazed at this, that we have a book of the Bible written about 1960 years ago, and it's addressing marriages that applies to us today. Jesus' time, divorce was rampant. Jesus' time, marriages were in disarray. Our time is exactly the same. We know that marriages are hard because the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, man fell. When man fell, everything became hard. Jobs became hard. Pregnancy and delivery became hard. Marriages became hard. So what we're going to do here to start, before we even get in the passage, we're just going to name some of the things that make marriage hard. And for some of you, this is going to be a time for you to go, okay, Yes, that's me. My marriage is hard because of that. It's not hard because you married the wrong person. It's not hard because you made a mistake. It's hard because marriage is hard in a sinful and fallen world. So we're going to look at three things that married people face. The first one is boredom endured. The second is evil suffered. And the third is sins committed. So the first thing we see, boredom endured. The world says joy and fun comes from variety, spice, and something new and different. The world says don't get stuck in a rut. You need multiple partners. You need lots of opportunities to experience. But what we have seen is that multiple partners, lots and lots of new things, leads to severe loneliness. It leads to comparisons It leads to disease. It leads to children out of wedlock. And on and on it goes. The world's world's idea that you just need to go out and do your thing and live your wild life is actually coming home to roost and we see that it's worse than they said. Now, many of us believe that. We may not say it about marriage, but we believe that, you know, we need the new, we need to get the newest thing. That being married for a long time is like a goldfish swimming in the same bowl and seeing the same little, you know, treasure chest and the same little plant and the same 30 rocks, that that's what marriage is like. Yeah, we all understand that for a little window of time, if God blesses you with kids, life is crazy and it's never the same. But then after that, there's years and years of the same old, same old. What's ironic is that People do the same old, same old for many, many years, and it has nothing to do with marriage. Think about people who always eat the same meal on a certain day. 
Think about athletes who perform the same action over and over and over again, even when it's not been successful. Think about the number of times that you baseball fans or football fans or hockey or basketball or soccer have watched a game. It's the same amount of time. It's the same thing every time. But yet, we wouldn't say, well, you know, watching football, it's boredom. We should definitely divorce from football. We should definitely divorce from soccer. There's plenty of men uh, that I've talked to. Sorry, ladies, I haven't talked to you about it. But there's plenty of men that I've talked to that wish they had one more game. They want to go back and experience that again. But you played a hundred of them. But yeah, I want one more. See, marriage is like this. Marriage is something we, we enjoy over and over again because anybody who's been married for any amount of time knows that the longer you're married, the more deep you go into that other person. You understand each other. You see things in yourself and in them. A lifelong partnership is not the same old, same old When you have two married partners that are invested in the marriage, it only grows deeper and deeper. It's ironic that our world celebrates the people that hit 50 years of marriage, but they poo-poo all of it before that. And they're like, oh, come on, 20 years, you should need, you need something new. So the first thing is married people have to deal with is this idea that boredom is to be endured. The second thing we see is evils suffered. This is a direct relation to the fall. There are bad things that happen that are not the way they're supposed to be. Now, don't confuse the two. There are sins. There are things that we do and we are sinful. I'm talking about things that are evil that no person directly did but are just because of the fall. An example of this, and I think this is a good one, something that's evil that's not a sin, snoring. Can I get an amen? Don't do them too loud, ladies. Snoring. Snoring is evil if it's just had to deal with diseases, but it's not sin. Depression is an evil. Mental illness is an evil, but it's not sin. Unemployment, poverty, evils, but not sin. Sins may contribute to some of those things, but there are evils in our marriages that we have to go through together. Our world's view is, oh, something bad happens? You've got that partner with with something that happens to them? Oh, divorce them. I want to encourage you all tomorrow morning in your Monday morning gleanings, which if you haven't signed up for, you should. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to share with you a little eight-minute video about two young people who got married. I'm not going to tell you any more about their story other than that in the world's eyes, they should have got a divorce immediately. But when you see the love that those two have for each other, it's phenomenal. I want you to go ahead and sign up for those. Sunday Hub, get on there and do that. The world says, when an evil happens, if I don't like it, break it up. A married person says, all right, we're in this together. Let's go, arm in arm. And many of you have done this. You've suffered through things with a loved one. Evil keeps affecting us. How we respond to it matters. What we do and how we, as married couples, respond to the evils decides whether our marriages are going to flourish or they're going to flounder. When the disease comes on you, is it going to separate the husband and wife or is it going to draw them together? The third thing we see is sins committed. 
Married couples sin against each other. No amens on that one, please. Married couples sin. You put two sinners in a room together, they're gonna sin against each other. You put two sinners in a room together making other little sinners, they're gonna have lots of sin. So pray for those families with like five or six kids because it's not just, hey, two adults and it's, no, it's seven or eight sinners now. It's amazing they got here this morning, amen. Praise the Lord for the big families that are here. But sin is something that happens. Put two sinners together, it's gonna happen. Now there are great sins like lying, theft, adultery, violence, we know that. But there are lesser sins, sins that we do daily that need to be repented of, neglect, marginalizing, thanklessness, laziness, thoughtlessness, coldness. Each of these hurts are what make marriage difficult. It's what makes marriage hard. And that's not even including things like families, other, <laughs> their family, your family, getting along. Bad starts to marriages. Pre-Christian baggage. And don't even get started on what makes marriages really hard are those little people. So no wonder divorce is so common. As a matter of fact, it might, I'm surprised it's not more common. Marriage is threatened. Our marriage is threatened. Now, lest you think that this sermon today is only for married people, I want you to listen very carefully on this. This is not a sermon about how great marriage is and everybody else is missing out. That's not what this is about. Instead, what this sermon, this, this passage today, is Jesus saying, I want to put in front of you, this is what marriage is like, and we need everyone to grow marriages in this church. So if you're here today and you're single, you have never been married, or if you're here today and your spouse has gone on to be with the Lord, or if you're here today and you were married and are no longer married, because of divorce. We need you to see marriage rightly because we all work together to make marriages flourish. Whether you're young, whether you're old, we need to teach each other and point to the truth about marriage. We need you to pray for us. We need you to encourage us. We need you to befriend us. If you are here and you are single, you are a vital part of this church, and we married people need you. And next week, married people are gonna talk about how we need to be involved with the single people because we need each other. This is about reminding us of the truth of God's word because we so quickly forget. So this is not just a sermon today for those who are married, it's for all of us. So, let's get into the passage. Difficult marriages happened in Jesus' time. People endured all the same things we now endure. So let's get the setting here. Jesus is moving south. Verses one and two are gonna show us Jesus' move. He's just finished teaching on forgiveness. Remember last week I touched on it very briefly. The parable was the parable of the unmerciful servant or the unforgiving servant. This was the guy who was forgiven trillions of dollars of debt and then he goes out and finds someone who owes him a couple bucks and throws him in jail. So it's no surprise that Matthew decided to go from forgiveness teachings to teachings on marriage, amen? Because marriage involves forgiveness of each other. So here we go, verse one. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them all. 
So this place, Judea beyond the Jordan, this means on the eastern side of the Jordan. This is where John the Baptist lived. Today, it's modern-day Jordan. It's nice that they called it that. It keeps it easy to remember. This is probably near where John the Baptist had baptized Jesus. Jesus is now moving south. He said this earlier in chapter 18, that he's going to move south, and he's going to go there and die. And remember, the disciples were like, wait a second, that's not what we're doing there. But Jesus says, nope, this is what we are going to do. Look at verse 2, and large crowds followed him. This is a key thing, because the large crowds are causing a conflict. And the conflict is, the Pharisees want the large crowds. The Pharisees, those teachers of the law, those, who, those are the ones that say, this is what the law is. These ones want all of the crowds, but Jesus is taking them. So they are jealous. So their goal here is to knock Jesus down a little bit. Ideally, get everybody to leave him, but maybe at least split his people so he doesn't have as many followers. So that leads us to the test, which I'm going to say, it's a trap. Verses 3 through 6. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by saying, by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Because of this popularity, the Pharisees are seeking to divide Jesus' followers by bringing up something that's widely debated, even to this day. And one commentator says that it was actually more common for divorce to be around in Jesus' time than ours. So here they're trying to split Jesus' followers right down the middle. So there's two schools of thought. There's two different groups, and they're all dealing with Deuteronomy chapter 24 that says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then he finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. So the key words there are some indecency in verse 1 of Deuteronomy 24. Another way to put this is he has found any indecency. So there's two groups that are kind of warring about this. The first group is, a, is following a, a, a guy named Hillel, H-I-L-L-E-L. He's a liberal, okay? Not liberal like we have today, but his view is let's expand the ruling on this. And for him, he's not so much focused on the word indecency, but the word any. He's saying any, oh, so anything, and actually, in verse 3 of, of Matthew 19, any cause should have quotation marks on it, because that's actually quoting Hillel. Hillel says, you find anything wrong with your wife, you can divorce her. Shammai, S-H-A-M-M-A-I, is a conservative, and he wants to stick to the letter of the law and what it says. And so for Shammai, he says, well, but it says the word indecency. So he puts the weight there, and he says, it's got to be something really big. And so he would say, well, it's sexual immorality. John Calvin writes, though the Pharisees lay a snare for Jesus and cunningly endeavor to impose upon him, yet their malice proves to be highly useful to us as the Lord knows how to turn in a wonderful manner to the advantage of his people all the contrivances of wicked men to overthrow sound doctrine. So what, what, what they're doing, and, and, and it's, it's interesting because what they're doing is they're trying to trap Jesus, but they're also revealing their view of marriage, which their view of marriage is, oh, I'm all for marriage. How can I get out of it? See the problem there? Let me give you an example of, of a, a similar problem. When I was a high school teacher and I was teaching seniors, 
they would come to me many times and they would go, Mr. Roberts, J-Rob, how late can I turn this in to get credit for it? And I was like, okay, why don't you just turn it in on time? It's not due for a couple weeks. No, no, I, I need to know how late I can turn it in. And I go, no, just turn it in on time. You've got time. But let's just say I don't do it on the time it's due. How late can I turn it in and still graduate, right? You see the problem there? Instead of going, how am I going to do the work to get this done on time? They're going, how can I figure out a way out of having to actually do this and still get enough to get by? They're setting themselves up to fail immediately. And this is exactly what we see here in this divorce discussion. They're going, yeah, yeah, marriage is really important, but how do I get out of it? How can I I leave this marriage? What about this? What about that? And like I said, Jesus does not address the whatabouts here. Instead, he takes them back to what marriage is about. Jesus is going to say, before you can answer the question about what is a good divorce, you need to first know and understand what marriage is. So look at verse 4. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus first goes, let me remind you what marriage is about. And instead of dealing with whatever whatabouts they had at that time, he goes all the way back to the garden. And he said, this is what you were made for. See, the Pharisees are asking the wrong question. They're asking the question about how can I get out of a divorce? And Jesus is saying, how can we strengthen marriage? How can we make sure marriage is what it's meant to be? In verse 4, he quotes from Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Our world disagrees with pretty much every word of that verse, doesn't it? No wonder they find our views of marriage outdated as well. Verse 5, Jesus continues. uh, He says in Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Right here in verse 5, which is quoting Genesis 2.24, we see all the, the parts of a healthy marriage. We see a family unit. We see a personal bond, and we see a sexual union. And see, this is the thing. In the Bible, there's always patterns. Christian and I were talking about this this morning, about how patterns preach something. And there's a pattern in the Bible. We see that in the temple, where they would go and they would do sacrifices. And this is a pattern. It's not words, but it's actions that teach us something. God does this throughout the Bible. He teaches things through how he did things. So for example, if God wanted man to be alone, He could have made Adam and then waited a very long time. Adam's getting close to dying and make another. Or if he wanted man to marry multiple wives, he could have made Adam and a whole slew of ladies. If he wanted to make um, homosexuality be the standard, he could have created two men or two women. But in fact, he made a man and a woman. And this pattern preaches. It preaches that this is the way it's to be. Then by immediately saying, go and reproduce, he's showing that he honors their sexual union. He honors it and is good and it's his will. Verse five, therefore for this reason, he's saying marriage was created first 
before kids, before cities, before everything that we hold up as being of some sort of value for this reason. And it says, he will hold fast to his wife. The old King James says, cleave, which to means to stick, but nowadays the word cleave means to cut. So our Bibles have changed it to hold fast, which literally means to glue and become one. You know, there's some glues out there. I think it's, it's a Gorilla Glue, or the, definitely the modeling glue that you use on models, actually melts the two pieces of plastic so that they become one. There is no seam there anymore. Instead, it is one full piece of plastic. This is what this word means here, holding fast, being stuck together. They're no longer two, they are one. One author writes, one fleshness means that two different lives will seek coordination with each other as an inevitable, as one body part seeks coordination with another. One fleshness is so profound a reality with it that Jesus has already answered the divorce question before even addressing it. See, right here, Jesus has already said, this is, this is the way it is. You can't separate something that's one thing. Malachi 2.15 is kind of alluded to here, where Malachi writes, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what has the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. See, God's math is very unique. One plus one equals one. There's no way to divide without becoming a fraction. He who divorces his wife tears half of himself away. Notice it's not us who join it together, it is God. Now, does that mean that every single marriage that's happening today in Las Vegas is God joining them together? Well, I'm not sure God's pleased about where they're happening necessarily. However, a marriage is a marriage in God's eyes because Vegas didn't invent marriage. We didn't invent marriage. God invented marriage. So that last phrase, let not man separate. What that means is not that man can't separate it. What it's saying is we should not actively try to separate marriages. God's action is behind it. So we have no right to destroy it. By going back to the beginning, he's saying this is what God did. This is how God put it together. Do you see the unity here? Just in verses three, four, and, or 4, 5, and 6, he says, Hold fast to your wife, glued to your wife. Become one flesh. You are one flesh. You are joined together. Let not man separate because you are united. Do you see it? It's unity, 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 unity. Jesus might be wanting us to know that maybe marriage is about unity. You think? The two are no longer two, but one. The Apostle Paul references this teaching when he talks about having sex with a prostitute and how the sexual union of going together actually combines them together in one flesh, but then it's ripped apart over and over again. He's showing the severity of it. That does not mean the man's to go and marry the prostitute, but to recognize that that separating of the two is a big deal. Now, this should not surprise us that Jesus goes here. I mean, look at Jesus' purpose on earth. What is he doing? He's trying to get us back to the garden, right? Prior to Genesis 3, the garden was paradise. It was heaven on earth, heaven being wherever God is, and then that's where God was on earth. He is going to, through his perfect sinless life, 
pay the price, have our sins laid on him. He's gonna put to death sin in our lives and then give us the opportunity post-cross to live lives beginning to look more and more like the garden. When we come together here, we are representing what heaven is going to look like. Yes, we're fallen. Yes, we're sinful. Yes, we're constantly needing to repent. But this is a whole lot closer to heaven than the Ducks game down the street, than the air show in McMinnville, than a Broadway play visiting the Keller. Big groups of humans together usually end up in something bad happening. But we as Christians, we gather together. This is to show what it's going to look like because there's a promise. What's that promise? is at the end, the garden comes back to earth. I've said it before, and I know you guys have heard it, but in case you didn't get it, at the end, in Revelation chapters 21, 22, it says the garden is here, and God comes and lives on earth. Heaven is on earth, and we live with him for eternity. This is what Jesus is all about. He's all about getting us back to the garden. He's pointing us back to creation. Marriage is to be held in high esteem. And like I said, the enemy is after us. He's making marriage a joke. Back in March of 2013, a lady, I'm not going to say her name, married a bridge in France. I, that wasn't a misspeak. It wasn't a guy that was quiet and strong like a bridge. No, she married an actual bridge. And they had a ceremony, and they had a big thing, and there's articles on it. The thing that most disturbed me was not this woman who, who clearly has some things going on, but it was the pastor standing there with tears in her eyes about how sweet it was that this woman devoted herself to a bridge. She was crying. Oh, beautiful. She married a bridge, a bridge from the 1300s that stood the test of time. It'd be really fun to ridicule but more, it's sad. That's what you see marriage as? I, I, when I was typing in, woman marries bridge, I, the, you know, Google gives you the little suggestions, right? Woman marries woman. <laughs> I was like, oh, that, I'm not going to click that one. So I just tried it. Man marries, and it came up himself. It's like, oh, woman marries herself. Woman marries her pet. I mean, our world takes marriage and makes it an absolute joke. We need to not be people like that. Marriage is not about making little humans, even though that can be included if the Lord blesses that. Marriage is not about having your perfect other completing you, complimenting you. No, there's actually one purpose to marriage, and that is glorifying God. Ephesians 5.31, don't take my word again for it, let's read the Bible. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That sounds familiar, Paul's quote in the same place. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. See, our weddings, our marriages are to point to one thing. They're to point to Jesus and his wedding to us is combining to us. A marriage is to be between a man and a woman for life, but that's not all of it. 
Paul makes it clear that men are to treat their wives as Christ treated the church. This means, men, we die daily for our wives. We want to win our wife's heart every single day. Why? Because that's what Christ does for us. He died for us. And wives, women, we are to submit to the Lord by joyfully submitting to our husbands. This means following your husband as he follows the Lord. This does not mean, women, that you're doormats, but being an active part of the relationship and ultimately trusting the Lord with the husband he gave you. Husbands dying daily, wives submitting joyfully. This is the picture of how it's supposed to look. This is the picture that we're supposed to put together. Maybe not perfectly, but we put it together because when we look like this, we're imaging God. See, we're all made in in God's image. And what that means is each one of us is a little reflection of what he looks like. And when you put two of those reflections together, it gets a bigger reflection. There's an opportunity for the Lord to be seen even more. Now, I know for many of us, it's not that way. We're not all there. Marriage is still a struggle. It's hard work. But Jesus has words for us here in a minute. But I want to stop and make one little side point, okay? One little side point that I think we all need to get. Because we hear something pretty regularly when marriage is talked about. We hear this claim that Christians get divorced as often or more than the world. And there's a, there's a really important theological word for that. And it's called baloney. Because here's the thing, that's a 100% false stat, and I'm sorry to say that I probably have said it, and I know other pastors have said it, it's 100% not true. So let me explain to you how that works. So when stats are done, when statisticians do polling, they take polling data of big groups of people. So what they do is they take a big group of people and they say, what religion are you? Well, we're Christian. Okay, so these are all the Christians. And then they take the data out of that. Oh, Christians, they get divorced at, you know, 60%. Oh, the rest of the world gets divorced at only 50. Christians are terrible at marriage. Now, is there possibly a chance that there might have been people in this poll who claim the name of Christ but have nothing to do with Christ? Do you guys know that still here in Oregon, there are more Christians than there are any other religion? Do we see any evidence of that necessarily? 80% of America claims to be Christian. 60% of Americans are okay with abortion and gay marriage and pornography usage and on and on and on. So could it possibly be that this polling is wrong? Okay, so I've shown you the polling might be wrong. So what does the polling actually say? Well, when you take a group that say they're Christian, you have to be able to nail it down and find out who are the real Christians. Now, we don't have a magic ball that lets us see right into their hearts, but we can do what the Bible says, which says, be fruit inspectors. So what is the fruit? What would be the criteria we would use to figure out of this big group of 60% divorce rate, what would we do with that? Well, we start looking at it and we go, okay, do you go to church three to four times a month? Are you a member in a church? Do you agree with the biblical stances on sexuality? Are you actively pursuing right living with the Lord? And when you do that, that 80% of America starts going down to a much smaller number. And you know what happens? When you go down to that group that's a real Christian, the divorce rate plummets. It is the lowest by far. 
Not only that, because you're like, oh, okay, those Christians, you know, they just effort it out and they're miserable the whole time. Now watch this. Not only is the divorce rate the lowest of any group, but the sexual fulfillment of men and women is at its highest level. The, the satisfaction with where you are in life and your roles in your household, highest level. Women are the happiest when they're married to a Christian man. Men are happiest when they're married to a Christian woman. And when they're together, the happiness is light years ahead of every other group. So let's not say that, not, that Christians have this divorce rate. Now, does that mean our marriages are all perfect? Our marriages are all the way they should be? Absolutely not. We all have places where that sin is still helping us to bump into there. But don't believe the lie that we're all as bad at marriage as the world. But there is one more point I want to make of this. So remember that big group of people that claim to be Christians? And we've taken the Christians out of that group? So now we've got this group that says, I go to church once a month, maybe. I definitely go to Christmas and Easter. I definitely know the Bible teaches things like women submit. And I definitely, you know, call myself a Christian, but I have nothing to do with this church. And I have no evidence of growth in my life. This group, guess what? They have the worst divorce rate. They have the lowest satisfaction rate. They have the highest depression rate. So being a nominal Christian, a person who is a Christian in name only, puts you in the worst category. I mean, think about that. Think about that, how dangerous it is to get a little bit of the Bible in you and then not the rest of it. I mean, what parts are we going to pick? I'm going to pick on the guys for a second. If I'm a person who shows up at church once a month, what parts of the Bible am I going to pick up on? Oh, wife, you have to serve me. The Bible says submit. Make me a sandwich. Is that what the Bible teaches? That's not what the Bible teaches. But we get that little bit of the Bible, and it makes us really dangerous. The enemy loves for us to have a little bit of Bible knowledge because we're going to apply it wrong if we don't have Bible knowledge. So today, if, if, if this description is you, that you are a Christian in name only, you're in the most dangerous spot for any sort of marital satisfaction. Now, not all of us, when we hear the statistics of how rare divorce is and the satisfaction in spousal living, not all of us are there. I'm not saying that to make you feel bad. What I am saying is, even if you don't have the Ephesians 5 spouse or you don't have the marriage you're dreaming of or dreamt of, Jesus still has a word for you. So hang with me. We're going to get to it. So the Pharisees, they go, well, that question didn't work. What are we going to do now? Well, now, instead of trying to split Jesus' people, he, they're just going to lump them all together and try to get Jesus to go against Moses. Well, if they can't get him to go against Hillel and Shammai, let's see if he can say something negative about Moses. So the second trap is the commanded trap. Look at verse 7. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Now, the Pharisees, again, are referencing this passage in Deuteronomy 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if he finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency, he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and then it goes into another discussion. See, the Pharisees have a father, and their father is the devil. And what the devil is really good at is he's really good at moving a word around. 
And what he did here on this is instead of he writes her a divorce, he should write her a divorce. He's commanded to write her a divorce. He loves to take one word and switch it so that we go, oh, I'm not disobeying the Bible. I'm doing what it says. He did this with Jesus in the wilderness. He did it with Adam and Eve in the garden. And he's not stopped doing it to this day. So Jesus goes, all right, let me clarify. Because you know, I actually am the God of the universe and I was there when Moses was given the command. But let me explain to you what was happening. Look at verse eight. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife for sexual, except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus right here mercifully acknowledges that sin is a problem. Sinful hearts are the problem with marriage. Two sinners joined together is the problem with marriage. Notice he says, because of your hardness of hearts, you were allowed to divorce your wives. Jesus is turning it on these Pharisees and saying, I know you all have done this. If only my people would get back to the main thing. One man, one woman, one flesh. This is an indictment on the sinfulness of the husbands here, these Pharisees. Because of your hardness of heart, the men are on blast here. Your hearts were hardened. That's why this happened. See, this is not a command. This is an allowance. He's saying, if, if as a last resort, this is an option. But this is not a command. Someone hurts you in marriage and does one of the exception things. The first thing to do is to try to save the marriage. Not to go, oh, got it. I got the thing. Now I can get the divorce. See, here Jesus does not change what Moses said, but puts it in its proper place. The first place is no divorce. The second place is do everything possible to not divorce. And then last result, do the divorce. Jesus' message here, though, is do not let your hearts be hardened. You know, calluses on your hands. I remember, I remember getting them as a youngster. I was starting to lift weights. And I remember going, oh, look at I got calluses. I'm a man, right? What are calluses made of? They're dead skin. They're hard. They're rough. Why are they hard and rough? Because the skin has died because of the pressure on it. A hard heart is a dead heart. Jesus is saying, the only thing you can control in your marriage is your heart. Do not let your heart become dead. Do not let it become numb. Jesus wants our hearts to be alive. What was the promise in Ezekiel? Take the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. The reason that divorce exists is that hearts become hardened. A hard heart is one that cannot be joined with another. And this is the picture. Hardness of heart is why divorce exists. It exists because one heart has decided to become hard to the other and the marriage is split. The one flesh is split. Ephesians 4 tells us about what not to do. Everybody talks about Ephesians 5 as a marriage passage, but Ephesians 4 is leading into the marriage stuff, and I think it's important that we get it. This is what he says. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. There's no neighbor closer than your wife or husband, for we are members one of another. Be angry, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor 
doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only as such as building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, but by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And then he gets into the marriage stuff. So you see how this is the foundation, just like we're seeing here. Jesus lays the foundation of forgiveness in chapter 18 and chapter 19. He says, and since we're forgiving, let's talk about marriage. Our hardness of heart is why divorce exists. God not only sees but foresees the hardness of men's hearts. He suited both the ordinances and providences of the Old Testament to temper that of the people. The law of Moses considered the hardness of men's hearts, but the gospel of Christ is the cure. His grace takes away the heart of stone and gives a heart of flesh. The law was the knowledge of sin, but the gospel was the conquest of sin. Matthew Henry. See, what Moses is doing here with this, this, this uh, allowance of divorce is he's teaching something. And I, I found a, a quote here. I think this is pretty good. Just as a car is made to drive safely on the road, not to skid around colliding with other cars, so marriage was made to be a partnership of one man and one woman for life, not something that could be split up and reassembled whenever someone wanted. Moses didn't say, as it were, when you drive your car, this is how you have an accident. Rather, he said, when you drive a car, take car care not to have an accident. But if tragically an accident does occur, here's how you deal with it. This is an important thing for us to understand. This is the whole framework of how Jesus is dealing with this. Verse 9, the one who marries another commits adultery, meaning that the marriage started with a sin. This was to show how severe the any, any reason group is. Because literally, they would say, she burned your food, you can divorce her. Now, I'm not sure how bad you have to do with the food in order to separate the one flesh, to cut part of you off. If we think about it that way, how bad does a meal have to be for you to cut off both legs? See, that's the picture that Jesus is giving us here. Now, what this doesn't mean is that if a person gets a divorce and it's wrong, that that's the unforgivable sin and they can no longer be allowed in the family of believers. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, see how serious it is if you get a divorce for a not a real reason. That's what's being said here. If you get a divorce for no real reason, then that first act of maritable sex is adultery. So if you're in that spot, there is a, some repentance that needs to happen there. Now, does that mean that that second marriage needs to be dissolved with a divorce and then get remarried to the first? No, no, two wrongs don't make a right. But acknowledging the wrong and repenting of it and moving on is what needs to happen. Divorce is permitted and not required. See, I think a key thing for us to understand is every single divorce is a result of sin. Whether on both sides or on one side, there is sin at the heart of every single divorce. But not every single divorce is sinful. And I think that's the point that Jesus is making here. Verse 19, except for sexual immorality, porneia. This covers a gamut of sins. 
Everything from adultery to homosexuality to incest to bestiality to what we would do as pornography usage today. What is, what is Jesus arguing here? Is he saying that only this group of people can get a divorce, but everybody else has to suffer through it? No, hear me on this. Jesus is not saying that if your spouse is breaking the one flesh covenant by beating you, that you have to stay. That he's breaking the one flesh covenant by neglecting you that you have to stay. That's not something that Jesus is going to say, here's a command, because we all know every single marriage has all sorts of nuances. So if you're here today and you're going, does my relationship mean I should, I could, I need to get a divorce? The question isn't, where can I find it in the Bible? The question is, where can I get help where I'm at right now? This room is full of people who have gone through all sorts of marriage things. Your elders, your pastor, we want to help. We want to be there with you and walk through a marriage that is not going well. You are not a lone ranger in this. As a matter of fact, Rick and Debbie Gill, they have a group that's called, um, oh my gosh, I just blanked on the name. Marriage team, there we go. They've been trained in marriage teams. They come together with married couples who are struggling and they walk through how to grow your marriage. See, Jesus doesn't come out and say, here's all the ways you can get divorced because that's not what he's about. He's saying, this is how you make a great marriage. And yes, worst case, last result, yes, there might be a divorce that's needed, but everything else, we gotta fight for our marriages. Fight. Men, fight for your wife's heart. Women, fight for your husband's heart. And those of you in the room who are not married, help us. We need it. We need your help. We need you to come alongside us. Because you, not being married, can devote even more time to the Lord like we'll see in next week's passage. So pray for us. We need your help. Sitting back and looking for ways out without asking for help is not going to save anybody's marriage. We need to remember that. So, Jesus, like he always does, he makes everybody upset. Disagrees with the Pharisees, the Hillel and the Shammai. They don't get what to hear that there was the way to go. But even more so, his disciples get upset. Look at verse 10. This has been a very, this has been a very good uh, little 10 and 11 were good for me as I was studying this. The disciples say, if such is the case of a man with his wife, meaning you can't divorce her for burning your food, it is better not to marry. Jesus said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those whom it is given. The disciples are going, Jesus, you're making this hard. That's exactly what he's doing. What's ironic is that in the next passage, Jesus says, marriage is so hard, you all should choose celibacy. Our world does the exact opposite. Celibacy, you know, marriage is hard. Don't choose celibacy, right? There's, there's all of this backwards thinking. He's saying not everyone can do this, and next week we'll walk this through with the singles and with children. But these marriages cannot survive. You cannot have a thriving marriage if the first thing you're thinking is, how do I get out of it? How do I find an escape clause? See, God hates Divorce. He doesn't hate you if you've had a divorce. That's not what he's saying. He hates divorce. 
because it rips apart what he has joined together. God never intended divorce to be a part of the human experience, and it grieves his heart. But there's good news here. God's hatred of divorce is really good news. And it all comes back to Ephesians 5.32. This mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Here is the thing. If you get nothing else from today, Pastor John, you didn't answer my questions. I have all sorts of issues. If there's one thing you get, it's this. God will not divorce us. Amen? There's nothing we can do to make him love us more. There is nothing we can do to make him love us less. If we are his in Christ, he's ours. This room is full of people that have been hurt by divorce. It's affected every single one of us. Some of you it's affecting right now. It still hurts. But Christ promises us he is our groom and he's not going anywhere. He will never change, never fade, never stop loving us. He will never divorce us. So Jesus' message is don't harden your heart like your forefathers did. Start there. You can't control your situation. Some of you might be in the midst of contemplating divorce. Some of you are still dealing with the repercussions of a divorce. Some of you are missing a spouse that's no longer there. You can't control that situation. You can't go in the past and fix it. But what you can do is draw near to the groom who is never going to leave you. And I know, guys, that's weird to have a groom. But Jesus is your God, and he's not going anywhere. Listen to these promises. Psalm 147. He heals your broken hearts. He binds your wounds. Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon you. Because the Lord has anointed him to bring the good news to the poor, to bind up our broken hearts, to proclaim liberty to us who are in captivity, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Psalm 34, the Lord is near to you, the brokenhearted, and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 62, trust in him, Gladstone, at all times. O people of Gladstone, pour out your heart before him. God is your refuge. 1 Peter 5, 7, he's our refuge. Why? Because we can cast all of our anxieties on him. All of our worries, all of our fears, all of our doubts, they go to him. Why? Because he cares for you. He loves you. And then look at this. Look at the promise at the end. Revelation 21, 4. Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And death, the death of your dream for a marriage, the death of your marriage, the death of all of the things that you had planned shall be no more. Neither will they be mourning, mourning about what should have been, what could have been, or what may be. No more crying and pain of the hurt of it because pain will be no more. For the former things have passed away. Welcome to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are getting our man, Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, all of it together right there. We get Jesus, and he never is going away. The good news is Jesus is not like us. There's nothing we can do to earn his love, and there's nothing we can do to spurn his love. Praise God that the perfect marriage 
is there. No matter what our marriages on earth are like, this marriage is going to happen. The wedding supper of the Lamb, and that's us at the wedding, is going to happen. Christ will not forsake us. No matter how many times we play the harlot, the prostitute, no matter how many times we turn away, if we return to him and say, take me back, he will take us back. What a good God we serve. What a good Savior we have.